This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Brendan Wintle. He's a conservation ecologist at the University of Melbourne and director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. He joined me to talk about a new paper that has been released called Quantifying Extinction Risk and Forecasting the Number of Impending Australian Bird and Mammal Extinctions. I do have with me in the studio Professor Brendan Wintle and uh, he has many hats. He's a conservation ecologist at the University of Melbourne and he's also the director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub, which is a fantastic group of academics and scientists from a range of universities in Australia. So it's a great example of collaboration and the journal article uh, of which we're going to be discussing is also another example of fantastic collaboration with so many um, academics contributing. I can't even read them out because we'd be here for a while. But uh, the lead researcher is Hayley Gale, who's clearly an up-and-coming uh, scientist, which is fantastic to see her doing that and uh, and also many others. So thank you, Brendan, for joining us. Thanks, Amy. Great to be here. It's really good to have you in here to discuss this. And it is, I mean, it's a complex report, but in some ways it's also not. So we'll get into the complexities, but let's start at the top line to get a lay of the land. In terms of how we were previously ranking and assessing animals, mammals and birds in Australia and whether they were endangered, Mm. what was the previous way of doing things or the established method? Mm. Look, there is a a strong established method uh, that we use to uh, list species as endangered or threatened under our national legislation. It relies to some extent on uh, scientific data where those data exist. And for example, if a species has undergone a 10% decline in in 10 years, uh, you'd get a certain threat ranking um, threatened. And if it was greater than that, you'd be listed in endangered or critically endangered. Those are the Mm -hmm. cases where you have good quantitative data. Uh, There are other cases where those data don't exist and experts are required to make an assessment uh, of how endangered the species are, species is. And, and so we've got a method, we've got a good scientific committee that deals with all of the assessments. We now have over 1,900 species and threatened communities listed uh, under the national legislation, uh, which is great. And, and some of our top scientists sit on that panel that make recommendations to the minister to Mm. list species as endangered. But what we haven't had, I guess, recently is a very urgent and pragmatic assessment of which species we think we're most likely to lose next and what we can do about it. And that's what this bit of work tried to deliver. Yes, this is really at the pointy end Mm. and, and really trying to bring together a range of methodologies and categorizations in order to list and rank those species, mammals and birds in Australia that are Mm. most likely to become extinct in Mm. the next 20 years. And it is quite interesting to look at the map in terms of the distribution of where these mammals and birds lie because Mm. they're almost flip side. The birds are more so down the the bottom end over here in in Victoria, Tasmania, New South Wales, Queensland, bits of Queensland. Mm. And then the other area, obviously for mammals, it's up the top end and also a little bit on the the bottom right to the edge towards uh, uh, Western Australia. In terms of looking at where the greatest impact is, how do we coordinate an approach when there is such, they're distributed so far and wide? Mm, That's a good question. We 
obviously coordinating both an assessment of threat, which species do we think we're going to lose next, and then uh, a strategy for trying to avoid extinctions is a hugely complex task involving multiple jurisdictions, state and commonwealth, and really the, the people on the ground who have to try and do the work uh, can even be private conservation organisations, individuals in some cases where you have a really restricted range species. So yes, it is complex, but the way we try and deal with that is by thinking about the threats that are most important to these species and how we're going to coordinate our efforts to deal with those threats. And part of that geographic distribution of the, of the threatened species that you mentioned before is to do with the geographic distribution of the primary threats. Mm. And so uh, in many cases, uh, the the small mammals have been really severely impacted by uh, the introduction of feral predators, so cats and foxes primarily. Um, it's important to remember that also we have a lot of threatened plants and they make up the bulk of our national threatened species listings uh, and they're highly threatened by invasive uh, rabbits and and, and um and goats and and those sorts of things, as well as sort of strategically introduced grazing, I guess, just Mm. cattle grazing. So we try and identify the key threats and we figure out where can we have the biggest influence on mitigating those threats. So those those mammals are really, really in trouble because of cats and foxes and, and that that impact seems to really play out most acutely in those arid areas. And it can be as simple as uh, these animals just struggle to find cover to escape cats and foxes where in in the more complex habitats uh, of the the coastal areas, they're they're more likely to be able to find refuge. Uh, The birds have suffered a lot from habitat loss and clearing and a lot of that has been happening, you know, around the productive coastal fringe through urban development and through... um, and and through agriculture. So the threats distribute differently across Australia and the species that are most susceptible to those different threats therefore distribute differently across the continent. Mm. And when we look at the list and the ranking of the top 20 species, particularly of the mammals, just by reading them out, I'll read a few of them out so people get an idea of the types of animals that we may lose if we don't start acting in a far more comprehensive and coordinated way with more resourcing mm-hmm. um, is the critical point there. Mm-hmm. The number one is the central rock rat, which is likely to be extinct within 20 years and the percentage of likelihood is 65% the northern hopping mouse, the carpentarian rock rat, the Christmas island flying fox, the black-footed tree rat, Gilbert's potteroo, the leadbeater's possum, which many in Victoria are aware of, which we've discussed on this program. Many of them reside in Tulangi as well as the greater glider does as well. Mm. Uh, then we've obviously got the nabalek, brush-tailed fascagale. I mean, there's a lot of possums, mm. um, rats, mm. there's a bat there. They, as mm. you say, they yeah, are big. smaller and they mm. are more able to be threatened given their size and potentially their uh, ability to defend themselves yes, against right. feral predators. Feral predators. Uh, that list isn't exclusively about feral predators. The, the bulk of those species names you read out then, uh, feral predators is a big deal. Mm. Uh, but of course, leadbeater's possum, it's not really a feral predator issue. Um, it's interesting. There, there is some evidence now that some of our attempts to provide uh, artificial hollows for these species are, are um, being targeted by cats, especially that are able to climb and, and uh, utilise these hollows as little 
squirrel hunting uh, little fridges, basically. So that's news that will come out down the track. I won't go into that mm. any, any uh, further now. But uh, clearly changes in the fire regimes uh partly due to the way we've changed the landscape, partly due to climate change, we suspect is one of the big problems or the big combination of problems for Leadbeater's possum that's obviously exacerbated or partly caused by by historical forestry activities. Uh, the western ringtail possum is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Lots of habitat loss impacts. It's It exists in areas around Perth suburbs that are subject to urban development. So this is a species that's really suffering heavily from loss due to urban development. And, uh, and that's, so that's a slightly different case there. Of course, they are probably being lost also to cats, foxes and probably domestic dogs as well in those areas. But, um, yeah. but yeah, it, that's right, the bulk of the mammals there really are primarily threatened by, by feral predators. But, of course, that threat perhaps wouldn't have driven these things so immediately towards extinction were it not for the fact that we'd fragmented uh, the bulk of their habitat through clearing for agriculture and, and development, urban development, and therefore made them more susceptible to the feral predator threat. So it's that interaction of threats that's really important for a lot of these species as well. Yeah, and we do talk about biodiversity and it is important to see that these mammals and birds aren't in isolation. They're part of a huge ecosystem of plants and other mm. creatures. That's right. And certainly you've just referenced their land clearing as being a big issue and also that our plants are the most endangered, critically endangered at the moment. What are some of those plants that we aren't necessarily mentioning in in this report, but that certainly affect the existence of critically endangered mammals and birds? Mm, Look, that's a a good and and fairly difficult question. It's obviously very diverse when you look across the range of species that are there, but... um, especially those those bird species that are listed there. We might talk about those in a minute. Yes, yeah. uh, they often have some fairly specific uh, requirements re- uh, relating to particular food plants mm-hmm. and the distribution of those food plants can change through clearing, through changes to the fire regime, through grazing, for example. So we think that night parrots, for example, in, in central Australia are particularly um, uh, vulnerable to the loss of a type of spinifex habitat. And if that habitat disappears because we have rangeland grazing and we're burning perhaps inappropriately with big hot fires that can remove that vegetation for long periods of time, then we can lose that species again. You Mm. might remember that was one of the species that was rediscovered recently. We thought it was extinct. Obviously, it's still at incredibly low numbers and it's really quite likely that it will still go extinct if we can't figure out how to how to keep it in the game by mm. uh, avoiding threats and, uh, and and conserving its habitat and probably setting up some captive breeding that that's obviously takes a lot of resources. It does mm. and that's a great point and I, I do remember the night parrot finding and everyone being so excited to mm. capture the night parrot on camera mm. um, and it, it does raise a really important point that is also highlighted in the introduction of the article. One of these examples is the forest skink, which was endemic to Christmas Island and it remained unassessed by the International Union of the Conservation for Nature, Mm -hmm. of nature, sorry, 
sorry, mm. until 2010 when it was then listed as critically endangered, but it was too late. Right. Um, and the last wild reporting of that species was the year before in 2009. So mm. one of the major challenges that you're dealing with is mm. whether you can even quantify or make a, a, an estimate of how many are actually left in yes, the first place. Exactly. And that's why monitoring species, biodiversity in general, but also species that we believe might be close to the edge is so crucial because we can lose species before we even realise that we've got a problem if we don't spend money on having people out there uh, checking on how these things are tracking. So so at the moment, unfortunately, over 30% of our listed threatened species is the ones that we've decided as a society are in danger of going extinct. Over 30% of those don't have monitoring programs. 40% of them don't have recovery plans. So we're in a, you know, we're in a dire um, information vacuum, if you like, if we're trying to avoid extinctions and we don't even have the resources to measure how these populations are performing or indeed whether we still have them or mm. not. You know, that's and then tragic. be able to intervene. Exactly. And there's been some cases where uh, I guess we probably knew that we needed to intervene and we just couldn't drum up the resources to do it. So the, the Christmas Island pipistrelle is one of the mammals that's gone extinct in the last few years. Uh, we knew as a, a society of conservation biologists that that species was just about buggered and mm. uh, we couldn't get the... Uh, we couldn't get the funding and the initiative to, to go out and start a captive breeding program and keep that species in the game until we could figure out what the problem was in their environment, solve it and reintroduce them, which is one of the uh, the key activities of conservation scientists. There was a more optimistic story today in the, in the age I noticed where they're releasing corroboree frog uh, eggs back into the high plains. And that's a great story where the corroboree frog is an iconic species uh, for the zoo. Uh, the Victorian Zoo has, the Melbourne Zoo has had a captive breeding program for the frogs. And that's a case where the species is very close to extinction in the wild we'll probably lose it in the wild but we've got a really robust captive breeding program so that when we finally figure out how to deal with chytrid fungus which is this this uh, fungal pathogen that drives a lot of amphibians to extinction we might then be able to reintroduce that species back into its native range mm. and i mean there are so many fantastic uh, conservation ecologists other scientists working in this field through the threatened species hub and elsewhere mm. but it does raise a point that there is a gap as you've said in terms of being able to monitor and discover just how threatened some of these species are. What is your understanding of the contribution of citizen scientists in the monitoring of endangered species? It's mm, a good point, a uh, good question. It's a, it's a, an area where there's some contra controversy and difference of opinion, I guess, among scientists. On the one hand, of course, we want to make the most of citizen science and so developing ways that allow citizen science to positively contribute to knowledge and therefore the conservation of species is a hugely important activity and there's a lot of conservation scientists who are dedicated to trying to make the most of citizen science and engaging people with their local conservation issues and, and becoming part of the solution and that's mm -hmm. a hugely important step for us in, in um, normalising conservation, I guess, in local communities. Of course, there's the problem that 
politically it can be seen as a cheap way of getting the science done and perhaps therefore if we encourage community and citizen science programs we can spend less on professional scientists and unfortunately that's a that's a, uh, a fragile logic and it falls apart very quickly when you realise a very large proportion of our endangered species are in quite remote areas where community and citizen science programs can't effectively operate, areas that are difficult to get to. The species can be very hard to find. They're cryptic. You really do need to fund experts mm. to to look after, monitor and figure out what's going on with those species. So, look, absolutely we should encourage citizen science programs but we can't really imagine that they're going to substitute for the expert uh, driven programs that are so important to threatened species conservation. That's absolutely true and mm. we're coming up to the next federal budget and mm. we know that state governments and federal governments play an important role in funding research mm. but also in terms of intervening and creating programs exactly. that do protect species. Mm. Uh, we have the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act in Victoria which is supposed to provide some kind of framework to manage uh, species that are threatened mm. but we also have in the, the federal area a range of other legislation legislation, we've got a threatened species commissioner, a new one was recently appointed. Yes. In terms of the funding and the money that's coming in, I mean, obviously, there's so many areas, ARC uh, grants, for example, mm. but where is the greatest resourcing coming from? Or where is it needed to come from? Yeah, look, I think I'm always a bit uh, careful as a scientist to talk about the need for more funding in science, obviously you can't really manage properly if you have big knowledge gaps. So funding for conservation science is crucial, but just funding for conservation is crucial. We, there's no point knowing something if you can't act on it. And that was a, an example with the, with the Pipistrelle. We really need to increase the amount of money that we spend on conservation in this country. We, there have been international studies that show that we have the worst conservation record of any developed nation uh, on the planet. We've got the second worst on the planet full stop mm. uh, behind Indonesia in terms of local, uh, in, in, in terms of recent biodiversity loss. And we're a very uh, poor spender on conservation science. So we'd like to think that we, we're a, a country of, of people who are engaged with nature and the environment, but it's not following through to uh, what we spend on, on biodiversity conservation. So we spend less than 0.02% of our revenue on conservation science. So just to put that in real terms, we spend about 70 million bucks a year uh, nationally, that is, that's not including the states. That's national funding on of available budget on conservation, si conservation science and conservation practice, uh, compared to, for example, thirty five billion dollars a year plus, which is rapidly increasing on defence. Mm -hmm. So we we really have a massive. Um, problem with the way we allocate our funding if we're going to try and keep these species in the game. So we have to turn that around. Um, there's really no other way than uh, people lobbying their local members and, and the government to do more about uh, these critical conservation problems nationally. And of course, that's the same at the state level as well. We've seen some good initiatives recently in Victoria and some extra spending on uh, biodiversity through the biodiversity plan in Victoria. So, you know, I think things, things have picked up a bit here uh, over the last couple of years, but nationally, we're still in a pretty bad way. 
yes. conservation spending. And and it's a good point to make because really the first points that are made in this piece is just how far behind Australia is and the, mm. just how dire the situation is. And it, it does say that although extinctions occur naturally, the rate of extinction is currently uh, around a thousand times the background rate. At least three endemic vertebrate species were rendered extinct in Australia in the last decade. And uh, we really have had about on average of one to two mammals per decade becoming extinct extinct since the 1850s. Mm. So, I mean, this is a huge deal. Mm. I want to move to the birds because people often don't think that birds are as exciting as the mammals that maybe not as cuddly, but I disagree. There's a lot of birders who will disagree with exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, on this show, we talk about birds a lot. I think um, I, I did speak with Jim Robbins uh, from the New York Times earlier this year about The Wonder of Birds, yes. which is a book that he put out. Right. And they are just some of the most phenomenal animals that you mm-hmm. could ever come across in their biology, what they do, how intelligent they are. Mm-hmm. So could we talk a bit about some of these birds because the percentage likelihood of them becoming extinct is greater in some cases than the mammals. So, mm-hmm. for example, the King Island brown thornbill is 94% likely to become extinct within 20 years. We've got the... F- better-known orange-bellied parrot at 87%, the King Island scrub tit at 83%, the western ground parrot 75%, the Houtman Albrolhos painted button quail, excuse that uh, pronunciation, (laughs) (laughs) at 71%, Plains Wanderer 64, Regent Honeyeater 57, a grey range thick billed grass wren 53. So that is really high. That's over 50%. That's right. With just those eight that I've read out. Mm. Uh, In terms of the birds that are listed, these 20 birds, I mean, could you talk a little bit about some of those birds Mm. and the, the particular challenges or threats that they're facing? Yeah, of course. So, look, I'll I'll take one step back there. Mm. You mentioned the background extinction rates, and I think that's a good thing to just clarify for the readers. So what that means is that in the current times, uh, we we think we're at about between 100 and 1,000 times the background extinction rate. Background extinction rate basically means over geological time, species go extinct naturally uh, or they change into other species they disappear uh, and so we that background extinction rate for birds for example tells us that we would expect to lose globally about a bird species every 400 years so in australia we've lost in 200 years about 30 bird species so you can sort of see there where we're getting that that estimate from so that's mm. just australia uh, so compared to the background extinction rate it's massive, and of course, that's because of the of the profound changes that we've brought to the Australian environment in terms of land clearing, feral predators, changes in fire regimes, you, you name it, moving away from traditional land management. So, yeah. so there's a there's a, a huge impact there. And just to come back to your question about the um, about the the birds. It's an interesting list, even if you just take the top couple. Mm. Uh, there's some really interesting contrasts there. The King Island brown thornbill is not as beautiful as the orange-bellied parrot. Probably nobody 
none of your listeners would know what it looks like. It's not particularly notable looking. It has a wonderful ecology, of course, if you talk to the ecologists about it, but uh, it's a it's existing in a small uh, habitat patch in, Tasm- in, in King Island where uh, there's not very strong protection. The habitat is still being lost despite the fact that this is, you know, probably our most endangered species. The difference between 94% and 87% in a, in a list like this is probably not really worth uh, quibbling about, but uh, but that species is the top of our list and it's largely because it's still losing habitat. It is subject to feral predators uh, and once you get down to a population size that small, you're in real strife unless you have a captive breeding program and a very carefully managed genetic um, program within the, within a zoo or something like that, which the orange-bellied parrot is fortunate enough to have. Mm. The problem for the orange-bellied parrot is a bit different. We're, we're probably not losing much more of its habitat now uh, than has already been lost. It's unfortunately has a difficult uh, ecology because it it's determined to fly across Bass Strait every year uh, and and uh, do its um, do its its breeding and its overwintering um, on opposite sides of, of Bass Strait, which is a which is unfortunately risky thing to do. So it's fate is in the hands of the gods to some extent because you can lose a whole species in one bad storm yeah with where they're flying across bass strait so uh, fortunately we have a captive breeding program we we can make maximize the chances of this thing persisting in the wild uh, but uh, the wild is a a very difficult place for it so those two species give you a a good contrast to start with i think Um, the western ground parrot uh, it was hugely impacted by recent um, unprecedented fires in southwest Western Australia where it lost very large chunks of its habitat, high proportions, something like 50 or 60% of its remaining habitat in one fire. So, you know, a species that's been driven down by cats and foxes hanging on in these small patches and then you have massive fires running through those patches, there's a, there's a real problem there. So you, those top couple of species tell a an interesting set of contrasting stories about threats and the, and the fate of these species and also the importance of being a charismatic, wonderful animal that you can captively breed that gives you a much higher chance. Um, and the poor old scrub tits and thornbills are going to probably struggle on that basis. Yeah, and mm. the birds like the King Island brown thornbill, what is an example? If, if we were doing a big pie in the sky, mm. um, you know, brainstorm, or perhaps there already is that already developed, but how would you, if you selected that one, yeah. fund what it, would you do? what would you do? Yeah. Mm. Look, I, I guess the first thing you would do is try and connect with the local community there, small, tight-knit uh, community potentially, if you can pitch your story right and try and make this thing an iconic uh, action to be proud of, that they keep, they conserve this this species that is only found there on the planet. You know, wouldn't that be great? So, trying to uh, raise the profile of the species in the local community, get the community on side, because a lot of the habitat for this thing occurs on private land, and uh, and so. If you're going to have any chance of conserving it, you you have to get your you have to get people behind it, and they, you know that's one of the great things about some of our species here, including orange-bellied parrot and helmeted honeyeater, and you know they have great community groups mm. that that are really very important in the conservation of that species. So of course, in a long list of threatened species, it's hard to generate that kind of community enthusiasm, but you know 
uh, that would be your first step. Obviously, if possible, it's not always possible, trying to collect some individuals to start a captive breeding program is sort of, you know, it's the action of last resort, but when you're that close to extinction, maybe it's worth rolling the, rolling the dice and doing that, trying to get the species in secure captive population if you can. And, and a lot of these birds do, do work in uh, in captive breeding programs so but they're costly and and that's mm. the thing we have such a small amount of um resource available to us as conservation practitioners and conservation scientists that you know that decision to do that means that one of those other species on the list may not get uh the net the the actions that it, it requires but i would say the things that we've really got to focus on as a community are avoiding any further habitat loss. It's very simple. In your local neighbourhood, uh, in your state, you know, you need to be pressing your local members and your local councillors to just make it not okay to take away any more natural habitat. And I'm not talking about hundreds of hectares of beautiful, pristine natural forest. I'm talking about single trees in paddocks. They have a huge, uh, huge resource for a lot of species. The red-tailed black cockatoo, for example, in Western Victoria relies very heavily on old, decrepit trees in, in paddocks, uh, individual trees that are big enough to have hollows for nesting and, and roosting. And without those uh, those little isolated patches of habitat, these things can't persist. And a lot of people are not aware of the importance of those small bits of habitat. So that's why we need quite strong uh, regulations around clearing and losing of habitat. And we need people in councils with strong will to to say no to, uh, to the the loss of habitat. Mm. And one of those factors in terms of fires is climate change. And mm. I'm sure that's a really important part of conservation ecology at the moment. Mm. And it's something that we've looked at in terms of those um, old growth forests, but also people would know that even um, just a few years ago, we had major fires in Wye River, for example. And these kind of major bouts of habitat destruction can be you know, huge and have a massive impact. And uh, I just wonder when we're thinking about climate change and habitat, what are some of the the main things that can be instantly done or, mm. or at least in the medium term have an impact so that some of these most endangered species have a greater chance? Yeah, that's right. Well, that's a that's a good point. Climate change is, is a tough one for people. It feels overwhelming. How on earth can we, you know, push back on this and maybe we've gone too far? I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think for a lot of species, they can be adaptable to climate change if there's enough habitat around. So the key to having robust species that are robust to climate change is having enough habitat. So if you're in this tiny little patch and it's the only patch that you've got as a species and the climate and therefore the environment and the fire regimes change there significantly, then you might be cactus. But if you've got a large area over which you can range and move, then you have a much stronger chance to stay in the game. So, so I think probably the first climate mitigation action or the climate adaptation actions, we call it, mm. is to bolster through restoration, through habitat protection, uh, the amount of habitat that, that animals and plants have to in which to persist. I think that's a key thing. The other thing, the other, there's simple things that are so important like uh, cats, you know, don't let your cats out at night. And that's a, that's a, a very simple thing that, that local people can do that will save 
species potentially. Whole species can be saved by us mm. making sure we don't let cats out at night. We lose a million birds a day in Australia to cats um, and a very large proportion of those, just less than half, are from domestic cats. So we can, we can all act to try and improve that and Fortunately, the Victorian government now is looking into changing the rules about cats so that we can actually um, reduce the threat to local species that is, that is posed by cats in Victoria. So very supportive of those changes. That's good to hear. And uh, that reminds me of something, and I'd like to close out our discussion talking about the state level, because we have a state election coming up in November, and that is one opportunity for people to be lobbying their local members about these kind of issues around conservation and threatened species. In terms of the state government and its ability to affect change to protect species, what could we be doing and asking for, seeking, putting on the agenda with the state government alongside scientists and academics such as yourself so that we can move this along and potentially have that as an important issue that politicians seek to or propose to fund. Mm, that's really good. Good point. And look, there's, there's a range of things off the top of my head. I would say there's some fairly iconic um, issues around the Great Forest National Park. Uh, the more area we have in conservation reserve that is funded sufficiently so you can manage the threats in those reserves, the more likely it is that we're going to keep those species in the game that rely on those big forests. So, you know, powerful owls, greater gliders, leadbeater's possum, those sorts of species that are existing in those areas, that that could be a big change for them. Closer to home, we really have to be encouraging um, biodiversity friendly urban development if you can actually get biodiversity into your suburbs and we have a lot of endangered species that exist on the fringes and quite close into melbourne um, legless lizards and you know eltham copper butterflies they they all of these endangered species have the last of their populations in the in the suburbs. Uh, so if we can encourage local governments and councils, and, and that's often through Victorian planning law, mm -hmm. to institute biodiverse suburbs, and new, if a new uh, development happens, it should have a net positive uh, gain for the environment and threatened species. If we mandate that, then we can get a much better outcomes in mm -hmm. Victoria, I think. So there's a couple of sort of things at the opposite end of the iconism scale, I guess, you know, from the Great Forest National Park down to what you can do in your local suburb with your local government to try and improve uh, improve the outcome uh, in, in those places. And look, just generally, funding for the Department of the Environment, funding for Parks Victoria, these are fundamental um, mechanisms for conserving species in our state. And so a government that is looking after those key institutions is more likely to be looking after the environment and threatened species. Mm. And certainly uh, the Andrews government is a bit behind in, in comparison to past state governments in terms of creating more national parks or at least expanding the territory of national parks that are mm. protected. Um, and, and obviously we're seeing more and more estates being built, massive estates on the fringes of Melbourne, but also around uh, Geelong and the surf coast as mm. well. So mm. that's, as you say, another opportunity opportunity to affect planning and to get people in perhaps the property industry to be thinking about biodiversity and conservation and also individual homeowners uh, to start thinking about that as well. Yeah, great.
Exactly. Brendan, um, this has been so fascinating. I could seriously keep talking about this for the rest of the show, but unfortunately we can't. But I really want to thank you for coming in and spending so much time to delve more deeply into this issue and for you to be so committed and the uh, Threatened Species Research Hub to be doing the work that it does. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. It's been great to be on. And if you're close to Melbourne Uni today at 12 noon, um, we have Leslie Hughes, who's a distinguished professor from Macquarie University, one of our preeminent biodiversity scientists in this country. She'll be uh, talking at, uh, at Melbourne Uni at 12 noon. Uh, thank you very much, Brendan. Thanks very much, Amy.